You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to 3CR. This is Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, the time is 7am. It is the 20th of April. You're joined here by Genevieve, I've got Fong, Steph and Evie in the studio. Hi, how is everyone this morning? Hello. Morning. Good morning. <laughs> How's everyone's weeks been? Pretty good so far. Um, yeah, not much going on for me at the moment. Um, just enjoying that nice autumn weather right now. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I had the joys of moving house on the weekend, which is always fun. It's always a good time. <laughs> it's like the third time I've moved, like in the last year, and I feel like I'm just like getting less, um, I guess, picky about putting everything in its right spot. Like I literally just grabbed a giant bag and just like shoved <laughs> everything into It's like it. whenever I move clothes, I just get one of those big nana bags and just chuck yes. everything in from the hanger and straight into the bag. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll deal with it when I get to the other end. Yeah, I feel like I've been wearing the same kind of like outfit for like the last like few days, but that's fine. Um, speaking of the autumn weather, um, the weather today, it's going to be a top of 18, a low of 8, um, and a little bit rainy today, actually. Um, I can't tell you when it's rainy. Oh, it's going to be <laughs> around yeah, in the afternoon, there's going to be a bit of rain. So just grab your umbrellas this afternoon. I read there's going to be like a serious cool change in the afternoon. So to like rug up if you're commuting or leaving the house at the end of the day. Damn, Winter is on the way. Winter is here. I'm so, <laughs> bad at, I'm so bad at looking at the weather for the entire day. Like, I'll oh. just look at it in the morning and dress a certain way, and then something like that will happen. <laughs> yeah, I've lived here for 10 years, yeah. and I still don't get it right, ever. Never. It's like, no, no at this point of the year, you're supposed to have, like, a coat, maybe, like, three layers that you can strip off if you need to, and an umbrella, even if it's sunny in the morning. <laughs> yeah, it's not worth the inconvenience of, like, lugging around, like, a luggage bag and just, like, <laughs> different attire for, like, that it's day. Like, if, it, if it's cold, I'll just lump it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, just, like, brace it head on. Um, all right, we've got a jam-packed show for today. Um, after the news headlines, we're going to be playing some audio from the... Um, awesome show on 3CR called Out of the Pan. Um, It's presented by Sally Goldner, and it's an episode that she talks about consent, um, including queer and neurodiverse perspectives. Um, Pretty relevant in terms of what we're going to be speaking about with the news headlines. Um, 
Yeah, and then Fong's got an interview. Yeah, so at quarter to eight, I'm speaking um, with uh, Jodie Curry, who's the CEO of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Services in Brisbane. And we're going to talk about the birthing in our community service for First Nations families. Yeah, and then I'm going to be talking to Eliza Bone, who's a senior lecturer in higher education curriculum an assessment um, at the Melbourne Centre for the Study of Higher Education. I'm just going to be talking about online learning and especially, you know, what the universities have been doing in terms of online learning and what they can kind of do better in a way. I think this is kind of uncharted territory at the moment. Not many people... I mean, I think with COVID, everyone's kind of been a bit like, oh, it's okay, it's fine... You can, you know, just manage and everything. But now it's kind of like, okay, how can we stabilise this that it's going to actually be, like, effective education? So, yeah. Um, All right, we'll be back with the news headlines right after this. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. So the news headlines for uh, this week, um, I'm looking at one from ABC News from yesterday, Monday the 19th of April. The headline, for these Torres Strait Islanders, climate change is already here and they're urging the government to do more. So this article um, coincides with last night's episode of the 7.30 report, um, which is their which was the first part of their climate change series. Um, and this particular episode looked at how climate change is affecting the Torres Strait. The article speaks with many um, locals about what's happening on um, 17 of the inhabited islands in the region. And uh, right now there are rising sea levels, more extreme weather and coastal erosion um, that are devouring the region and also threatening their way of life. Um, I thought it was really interesting that, um, you know, listening to them talk about climate change, it's, it's here, it's happening right now, and they say that it's, it's not something that's happening in the near future or, or the distant future, it's already affecting um, these communities. Um, and I think, I don't know about all of you, but I feel like whenever we talk about climate change, maybe not we here at 3CR, but the general conversation, it's always in the future, down the track. Yeah, it's really, uh, you need things like this to remind you that, no, as you said, it's happening right now. Um, I think a lot of government policy loves to kick the can down the road and talk about 2050. I, I remember when I was a kid and they would talk about 2020 and then it's like, oh, okay, I'm in 2020 right now and nothing particularly constructive has happened and you still have MPs in Parliament who are, you know, in lobby groups like called like Friends of Coal. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's 
really important to keep on having those stories where people have to talk about actually affecting our communities right now. Yeah, well, speaking of um, MPs and the government, there are eight Torres Strait Islanders who are accusing the Australian government of um, failing to address the climate impacts that threaten their homes and culture, and they're saying that their, um, you know, their human rights um aren't being considered and so they're actually taking their case to the UN Human Rights Committee in Geneva. Um, so if you would like to support this group of um, Torres Strait Islanders, there is a petition that you can sign um, uh, to support them in their case against the Australian government. Um, we can pop a link up on the website, um, but you could also follow the Instagram account, Our Islands, Our Home, um, they have lots of um, links to different resources and statements um, about what's going on. Uh, but, yeah, I'd also recommend that people watch last night's 7.30 report, um, which I think you can watch again on iView because, um, yeah, just even looking at the damage that's been done, I mean, one local describes um, the surrounding area as a desert, which is wow. so wild because, you know... They're all islands that he describes, you know, that it's quite desolate now and and um, there's a lack of drinking water because um, the wells now are so close to the shore. Um, and you think about how these communities have, have survived and thrived on these islands for so many years. Um, so, yeah, that's um, that was this article. And, yeah, I thought it, it was really important and um, there's lots to be done. Mm. Um, I'd also give a shout out to the spin-off which is a New Zealand publication that's done a bunch of work on climate change in the Pacific and Kiribati so there's lots of good photo essays and stuff for people who want to see what's happening now rather than yeah down the road. Mm. Um, In other news we wanted to mention um, the legal battle that's happening with Clothing the Gap. Um, for people that don't know, Clothing the Gap is a small Aboriginal-run business located in Melbourne's inner north, um, and they've ended a two-year legal fight with uh, us clothing giant... Uh, sorry, US. <laughs> I read that as us. <laughs> sorry, excuse me. <laughs> um, clothing giant Gap, Inc., uh, the fashion brand will be rebranded as Clothing the Gaps by the end of July. The Gap challenged the label over the use of Gap in their name, citing trademark infringement after the Australian company attempted to trademark Clothing the Gap. And uh, Guda Jamara woman Laura Thompson is the co-founder and managing director of the company, and she said she was surprised when she received a cease and desist letter from The Gap in April 2019. This is a quote from her um, in which she told the ABC, When we registered Clothing The Gap with the trademark through Spark Health, I guess we thought it was a play on words with Closing The Gap. We never at all anticipated or hadn't even really thought of the gap clothing at all when we registered it. I mean, when I read clothing the gap, I don't think of gap, (laughs) the clothing label. Um, And uh, at the point, clothing the gap was still in in its infancy, and it was a year before Miss Thompson registered the fashion brand as a social enterprise. It was also a year after Gap Inc. closed all its stores in Australia. I mean, 
So we don't <laughs> even have any Gap stores. No. Yeah. 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 It, it, it is purely um, multinational flexing. Definitely. Um, this And Australia is often a, a battleground for these kind of things as well. There's been other, you know, pop stars who have tried to um, patent their name even though they don't sell clothing here. Um, it, it seems frivolous at best to yeah. be doing that kind of legal battle. But the really good thing is that um, the Melbourne community and, uh, well, Australia-wide, but in particular in Melbourne, have turned out to, you know, buy as much of their clothing as possible to support them, definitely. which is really great to see. Yeah, no, definitely. I've seen that a lot as well. Um, they're the um, company that does um, the beautifully graphic, like the always was, always will be T-shirts and tops and jumpers and totes. They do everything. <laughs> yeah, they also, um, rather than um, fighting the legal battle further, um, they've also decided to put a lot of their energy into freeing the flag, which is um, another legal stash <laughs> with the use of the Aboriginal flag on commercial products. Um, up until a couple of years ago, it was freely available for everyone to use because it was owned by the community. And, and now there is a certain amount of work involved having to license it in order to yeah, be able to use it. I've definitely read a bit about um, the trademark or who owns it. Yeah. They're not allowed to use it um, yeah. as, flexibly, as flexibly as they used to, which is crazy to even consider. Um, but, yeah, if you wanted to go on to support Clothing the Gap, or buy one of their um, one of their great merchandise that they have. Uh, just go to clothingthegap.com.au. Cool. And next headline: um, seventeen asylum seekers who were being held in Manj in Brisbane were brought to detention centres in Melbourne yesterday. So these are the men that were brought to Brisbane for medical care um, and have been in Kangaroo Point Hotel for over a year. On Friday, they were moved to the Brisbane Immigration Transit Accommodation Facility um, after a dispute between hotel owners and Serco. Ian Roundtill from RAC Refugee Action Collective said they were removed with only the clothes on their backs and they don't have any of their possessions. And then yesterday, they were woken up at 4am by Serco, flown to Melbourne and have been transferred to the Park Hotel Detention Facility on Swanston Street in Carlton. Um and Fight Together for Justice are reporting that they've been told they'll be forced to share rooms with others. So, yeah, this kind of feels like it's something that's just never-ending. Um, I was thinking about it in the context of some public appearances of Christina Keneally lately, who yeah. flew to Christmas Island on her own dime um, to visit the Biloela family. So The thing yeah. with that as well is that it looks good for her right now to be visiting Christmas Island, but if you look at her voting record, uh, she's either absent or has voted strongly against any sort of protections for asylum seekers. So if she's gone over to Christmas Island now, I'd be looking forward to her actually walking the walk um, after she's seen the conditions that this family is living in. Um, the whole aspect of um, keeping asylum seekers in hotels as well, it seems to have turned into, you know, a local detention once again. Yeah. Um, the, the initial premise was like 
medevac, which was bringing asylum mm-hmm. seekers here for medical care, mm-hmm. and they just haven't got that. They continue to be in solitary. Um, they, it, the, so much of it is just to do with hotels who don't want them there either. It's dreadful. Definitely, yeah, because of all the, I guess, what they would consider bad publicity from yeah. you know, yeah. protesting and mm-hmm. stuff. But I think it's like something like three have been released or quite a small number. There have been more released in the last, but it's mostly still on bridging visas. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think particularly from the Park Hotel, though, um, the majority of the men are still there. Mm. Um, And I guess what um, Fight for Justice also is asking for is presence there. So people on the ground at the Park Hotel in Carlton, Swanston Street... Um, showing your presence, showing, um, you know, your voice and, like, showing your support for the refugees that are still detained in that hotel. Even if you go at lunchtime, if your workplace is near there or if your uni's near there, just a show of support is always appreciated. Yeah, and there's always people there. Every time mm-hmm. that I've been past there, there's always people there. It's actually incredible, the um, solidarity that you see there, definitely. Um... All right, one last thing that I wanted to talk about that Evie um, pointed out was um, had happened in recent news. Um, so Australia's sex discrimination law will be amended to include MPs and judges um, and public servants, but particularly um, the there's been a bit of, obviously, dismay at the government's response to the sex harassment report. Um, A lot of women's groups are pushing for the federal government to put the onus on employers to take action to prevent workplace sexual harassment amid dismay at the Commonwealth's response to the Sex Discrimination Commissioner's Respect at Work report. Um, So they, along with human rights activists and the union movement, have digested... Sorry, I'm getting these reports from The Age as well. ...have digested the Morrison government's um, 8th of April response to the report... ...and have delivered their verdict as disappointing. Um, and, yeah, Evie, did you want to talk a bit more? Yeah, so to give some context, the Respect at Work report... Uh, ...was basically a collaboration to understand... ...between key government regulators to understand how they could improve... ...currently existing... Um, sexual harassment laws and, and it's a broad umbrella um, it also takes into account employment um, employment law as well uh, and you know aspects of criminal law too um, and it's quite a dense and detailed report um, a lot of the recommendations have not been received favorably by the federal government um, of course in the current context in which we're in right now where there's a lot of high profile you know, harassment or abuse cases, um, it's very important that they, you know, act strongly. And to not see that happen is very disappointing from, you know, every sort of person who has to work in these, uh, in very precarious environments, especially in highly casualised environments where they don't have the kind of protections that they need. It is very disappointing. Definitely. I think even, like, learning... Um, that, you know, the sex discrimination law doesn't encompass MPs or judges yes. and public servants purely for just, like, the wording of it. The it, Literally, the law can't protect them because of just, like, the wording of the um, act. Yeah. And... Very high-profile um, 
uh, you know, judges and lawyers have, you know, managed to escape a lot of scrutiny. Um, and also, you know, that they have people who work for them who are very vulnerable because they know that power is like the biggest protection that these people have. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so it'll be good to stay tuned in terms of, uh, their continued response or yeah. continued non-response. <laughs> Um, all right, we're going to go to a quick track and then we'll be back to talk about uh, a video I'm very excited to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> um, the new, quite bizarre um, consent video that was um, put out uh, for high school students by the fed- federal government, but we'll get all to that um, in just a sec. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367. 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter.
we're going to be talking about a very important video. Well, not important, but very significant, culturally significant video. <laughs> a very controversial video um, that was put out by the federal government. It's a high school consent video. Um, I think maybe we'll start off for anyone that hasn't seen it. Um, we'll start off maybe by painting you a picture about what it kind of encompassed. It's very bizarre. It's supposed to be an educational video for students in years 10 to 12, and it kind of sets it up. There's um, a heteros- uh, heterosexual couple, and they're sitting at a bench, and they're kind of in this, like, faux cafe studio yeah. <laughs> thing, um, which looks very clinical and everything, and they were they're sipping, like, milkshakes, um, and it's kind of supposed to be about, you know, moving the line, like everybody has a line where if you cross it, then it's disrespectful. It's all in euphemisms, pretty much. Um, just to give some context to what this is as well, it's there's a, there's a program for teenagers in high school called Respect Matters. Um, it's, it's aim is just to quote it directly is to support respectful relationships education in all Australian schools and to change the attitudes of young people towards violence, including domestic family and sexual violence. So the idea is very good. That is something that kids should have. Um, it's also part of the national plan to reduce violence against women and children. Um, however, the resource that they've, um, now created which is called the Good Society resource, um, is basically like it's a collection of videos and podcasts and activities. And this milkshake video is just an example of the kind of content that they're using to teach kids about consent and positive relationships. The problem, of course, now is that like if you see the video and as um, uh, Jen's like said, uh, it's very condescending and doesn't explicitly talk about consent in a way that kids can understand without making a joke about it. I feel like, and also if I'm just looking at like a, a, um, a still from the video, and if you have a look in the background, it's got all these images of really um, dated technology, and I know it, I feel like it's trying to give this video like a 50s, Definitely. like throwback feel, yeah. but it just like adds to the fact that the whole concept of the video is dated um and like even even the milkshakes i i just feel mm-hmm. like if you are like what we were um talking about off air evie like if you are um you said like if you're gonna um if you want it to apply to millennials and appeal to them. Like, yeah. Even just the basic concept of, like... Like, you don't need to pander them by, like, making it, like, millennial themed no, or anything. No, You can just make it normal, but also... But I, yeah, <laughs> but I feel like a lot of um, people in the younger generation, just through talking to them at schools and stuff, they are very switched on. Absolutely. And they do read and they do... Um, I think really want that honesty. I mean, I'm, I can't say that I speak for all young people, but it, it seems to be, um, like a trend that a lot of younger people now just really want like straight up honest yeah. communication. I think even like, I remember as a teenager, like the kind of things that they tried to use, like, you know, kooky, funny campaigns for like, you know, teaching about drugs or teaching about sex. Kids would only just joke about it and not actually internalise anything that's in it. Mm. So 
I just know that every kid is going to see this milkshake thing and just make a TikTok of how funny it is and not actually <laughs> internalize anything, no, which is, definitely. yeah, like kids don't like being condescended to. And if you remember, like a couple of years ago um, throughout uh, the uh, battle to uh, legalize same-sex marriage, um, and, you know, multiple different culture wars, um, conservative governments... Uh, even though they approved it in the first place, did not like the Safe Schools program, which was much, like, which was very honest about sexual health and good relationships and respectful boundaries mm. between um, t- young adults. Yeah, you have to, I, <laughs> I just love it, you have to speak in metaphors yes. to talk about uh, things that they would deem too risque. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Kids know like, about sex. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> you can be honest. <laughs> Discussing consent not in the terms of bodily autonomy and in the terms of drinking milkshakes, uh, eating pizza and, quote, touching your butt, which is what the video kind of says is, might be something where you would move the line with um, uh, how they kind of try to talk about consent, which is just, like, insane to me. And I guess for some context for people that haven't seen the video, it depicts, so, um, Veronica, the... Uh, I guess, um, female uh, person in the couple of this heterosexual relationship, she steps over the line by reaching into her milkshake and grabbing a chunk of ice cream and smashing it into, I believe, Bailey's face. (laughs) And Bailey's, like, obviously feels disrespected and that's kind of supposed to depict where there's been a moving of the line uh but veronica um can't see that and so therefore you know she needs to speak to her friend for her to see that and also another thing is like it's not about i guess um it was i thought i thought it was very focused on um the not the perpetrator, the person that is being assaulted. Um, And also, like, it's not about, you know, fixing, I guess, why this person has uh, disrespected or assaulted. It's about, okay, how do we make this relationship better? How do we make this work no matter if somebody's being, like, disrespectful to me? It's very confused in what it's actually trying to depict. Mm. And my biggest bugbear as well with all these kind of resources is that it always treats consent as something that's only considered in a brand new relationship Mm. between two people, usually heterosexual, um, like in their first sort of interaction, whereas consent, as you would know, is like all the time. You know, you have to always consider um, whether someone, you know, wants that or not. Yeah, I think um, something that Heather from Scarletine said last week, which was really interesting and has stayed with me, is that consent should and language should be part of our everyday life and it should start with early childhood. Um, you know, we don't, we don't temp, um, tend to ask young children if we can hug them or, you know, give them a kiss or, you, you know, we just sort of, they're, they're, um, demanded of it or, um, it's just a given that they are affectionate with everyone in the family and their friends and, you know, um, and, Perhaps that could be something that they take into consideration for future resources is to start it much younger. But, yeah, I know that there's been pushback as well about, like, when to start talking about 
yeah. sex and consent education as well. So yeah, because yeah. that brings into a whole nother level the home as where sex education should start, not relying so much or relying on school curriculum, but also kind of uh, putting that back into parents to mm. start that earlier, which is really <laughs> difficult, obviously, considering that that's um, you can't like. Uh, strictly impose that on families and mm. whatever. So I guess the curriculum's the only thing that they can control in a way. Yeah. Um, the other thing that um, is useful to consider is that um, there was an ABC article um, not that long ago um, about migrant families who are really desperate to talk to their kids about sex and consent education, but they just don't have any resources that are written in their language. Um, and I think with a video like this, which is not only just in English but uses metaphors, um, really makes it difficult for people out there who don't speak English as their first language to use that as a helpful resource for them and their families. Yeah, it, it, and not to mention, of course, it is very white and heterosexual. Yes, indeed. <laughs> it, it's something that, like, there's no sort of cultural basis or reference that would be uh, universal um, it makes it very difficult to be able to use it in a variety of contexts. Mm. I feel like the moves the line thing, it kind of reads like a road safety ad or something. Like they're trying to make a tag <laughs> yeah. that people are going to catch on to and yeah. like repeat back, you know, it's like merge a like a zip thing. or whatever. Mm. But it's like, what does it actually mean? Like, like just talk graph? about the issue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not a graph, but like a just a very like mathematical looking like depiction of almost breaking consent down mm. into like a graph like mm. it's just yeah like, it, it treats consent as a binary too even yeah. though like it like you know it sort of emphasizes that it like you know can go up and down or whatever it's yeah. still essentially treating it as something that you decide yes or no to yeah definitely and also um uh in the video veronica kind of um, tries to, I guess, construe herself as the victim by saying, please, no, I don't want to be this way. And, um, I mean, that's just, like, Oof. that close to saying that the whole thing of see what you made me do yeah. kind of thing and downplays the perpetrator's responsibility for their actions. Um, and, you know, that, uh, I guess, men's rights argument that the victim should take responsibility for preventing sexual violence, which is just, like, yeah. crazy. The, and, like, one more thing that... Um the conversation also um, pointed out is that a lot of the consent-based education that's in this site, um, it's only targeted towards year 11 and 12. Um, part of the campaign over the last few months to teach consent to education in schools is also focused on the fact that it should be taught to younger years um, because that a lot of, you know, things happen when you're a younger child too and you need to, it's, it's, Kids can understand it at a younger age. You can teach them what consent means. Like, Fung, you mentioned before, like, you know, we don't ask consent of kids whether it's okay to, like, you know, hug or kiss them. But it can be really useful early on to say, if you don't like that, you can say no, and it's within your right to say so. Mm. Uh, and so it's really important. Um, end Rape on Campus has been, uh, in Australia, has been really um, pushing hard um, to teach consent from a younger age, especially in light of lots of teenagers coming forward and saying that, you know, they've experienced harassment in schools at a young age too. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, any last remarks? 
It's worth it's worth How watching to say? <laughs> just to understand it. Um, yeah, I mean, just I guess a closing remark: if you or someone you know is impacted by sexual assault or violence, please call one eight hundred RESPECT. Um, that's one eight hundred seven three seven seven three two. All right, we're going to go to a quick announcement, and we'll be right back. Renowned surf coast musician and artist Red White and his band of nearly 20 years, Ink Factor, with their swampy, psyched out surf punk sounds, launched their new album, Soup Du Jour, on Friday the 30th of April at the Barwon Club in Geelong, with special guests, the Hibernators and the Quick Sixes. Tickets through barwonclub.ostix.com.au. Interfactor launching Soup Du Jour on Friday the 30th of April at the Barwon Club Geelong. For more info, go to facebook.com forward slash Interfactor. Interfactor and Red White are proud supporters of 3CR Grassroots Community Radio. You're back on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. The time is 7.39. We're going to play a quick track for you by uh, Melbourne-based band Nozu. Uh, this is a song that came out a few years ago, but it's called Yui Yia Yuiya.
You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, and that was Nozu. So earlier this year, the Lancet Global Health published an article about the effect of a birthing-on-country service redesign on maternal and neonatal health outcomes for First Nations people. The study aimed to report the clinical effectiveness 
of a Birthing in Our Community service on First Nations families. Here to speak with us about the service is Jodi Curry, a Mananjali Yagambe woman and CEO of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Services Brisbane. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, Jodi. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so for for our listeners who um, don't know much about this service, could you tell us a bit about um, what a birthing on country service is and uh, what birthing in our community uh, looks like? Um, we we were having we have really uh, poor rates of preterm birth weights. Um, we also have the problem in relation to how that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women access birthing um, within hospitals um, and antenatal care. Uh, and so it's shown that women, uh, this is across the globe, you know, if you're having five, your five antenatal health check, uh, antenatal checks that you get a better outcome for baby. Uh, research shows that if you have a healthy birth weight, the likelihood of your ongoing health throughout your life of, be, of being better is is exponentially better. So we decided to have a community world cafe, where, and that's what we called it, where we talked with um, elders and uh, community members and birthing mothers about what is it that they required um, for us to be able to improve their uh, maternity journey, their pregnancy journey. And so from that, then we um, established what is known as our Birthing in Community Program, um, which has principles of birthing on country in that cultural practices um, being a part as well of the birthing journey are so very important um, for baby and mother. Um, yeah, so um, what were what are some of the... Could you talk specifically about um, uh, what are some of the... Um, uh, services that you offer as part of this program um, that can really help and support um, First Nations uh, women and birthers as they go through um, this journey? Uh, so family support around, um, you know, when you have other children or um, issues in relation to housing, um, but also accessing other other health services as well that you might require. Transport as well is a really important thing um, because that can be a huge barrier for people to actually make sure that they're um, uh, attending appointments um, and staying connected. Um, the inclusion of, of community and elders and also developmental milestones. So we have speech, and OT, speech therapists and OT who work with uh, mother and uh, baby and other children around their development, but also the role of the midwife in working with the woman throughout her pregnancy about changes to her body. Um, and then once baby has come, also then around breastfeeding um, and bonding with uh, baby as well as a critical part of the program. Yeah, that all sounds incredible, and I think it just goes to show, um, well, it really does expose what's lacking in our current hospitals and in our current um, health services for First Nations communities. Um, uh, um, I know that there was a study that was um, conducted um, based on, on this um, birthing in our community service in Mianjin. Um, could you tell us a bit about the outcomes of the study? 
Yeah, so one of the really important, or there was, there was many, uh, you know, half the rates of babies having to go into neonatal care. Now, for any family having a new baby, that's just such a terrifying experience. Yeah. Um, so we've, it's halved the rates of that because, again, then of the health of the baby and mother um, during the pregnancy has improved um, the health outcomes for the baby. Also, another really important, there's many things, but a really other important thing was actually not having um, caesareans. Across mm-hmm. Australia, we um, run it between different states, but between 30 and 35% of women having caesareans. Um, but within birthing in our communities, it's at about 15, 17%. And the World Health Organization says as a developed country, that's the rate, range which we should be within. Much more um, mother heals quicker and spontaneous birth is the natural way of doing it. You know, and certainly some women need cesarean and we're not saying that that's not, you know, that some people do, but the actual natural process of birthing. And I think that was another really key thing. In Australia, we have birthing as this thing that's done in hospitals mm. and we are certainly looking, uh, our next sort of part of it is, is how do we have our own birthing suite that should be across the whole of Australia, that should be across for all different cultures, because that's the other thing around the cultural practices, the connection to um, family and history is a very important part. And so you have a you have a, a much more supportive environment for mother and baby in the actual birthing process. But the key things for us have been around the birth weights that we have halved um, the gap in relation to birth weights for Aboriginal babies. Um, we have also... Uh, the neonatal stuff as well, I think, is a real impact um, for families, you know, because they're not having that stress of baby being in humidity crib. Yeah, definitely. I mean, those results, those um, outcomes are, are so incredible um, uh, for for this um, first sort of study to be conducted. Um, what has been the response from, from the community about um, having this more holistic um, service and, and practice for, for First Nations families? Um, look, our engagement is um, we have a waiting list that we try to keep on top of and we've put to the federal government and also our state government around the expansion of because you're absolutely right. For us to be uh, in the Lancet Journal, which is a journal that has been around since 1832 uh, and is a world-class um, research uh, paper that we've been able to demonstrate such positive outcomes. Um, so we're waiting to hear back from, I guess, how that we expand the, the call from communities. How do we expand this? And but also then, how do we actually get to work towards uh, having a um, birthing centres? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I know that there's one currently in um, Mianjin or, or Brisbane, um, and you and you um, just talked about. Um, you know, your vision to uh, expand and, and create more of these um, birthing on country services and possible birthing suites across Australia. Do you know of any that are coming up um, in the near future and in other parts of the country? Uh, certainly in Nowra. Okay. Um, the community in Nowra are working towards that. And across the country there's... Um, but Nowra has certainly um, probably... A, few steps forward on that and they're doing wonderful work in that community. But I think across the whole of 
Australia as well, we need to change, shift this mindset that birthing is a is a medical condition, mm. and that if you you know because we go to hospitals for emergencies, I should think. The other thing is is that for other, we are such a multicultural country, and there are such beautiful ancient uh, birthing practices from all different parts of the world in this country, and we should really work together and lobby about how do we ha- actually have spaces where families can birth within traditions that uh, belong to that child as well, and as well as then celebrating birthing on country in this, which is Aboriginal land, you see? Definitely. joining up. Yeah, and, and what you said at the very beginning, Jody, about you know, what happens at birth really does um, set uh, the trajectory for, for, the, for the rest of their life and, and how, um, you know, how they uh, uh, grow and develop um, and the health outcomes um, in later years. It sounds like having, um, having these services that are, like you said, specific to different cultures, different traditions and rituals could really impact on the health cap outcomes for, for different communities, not just at birth, but, but later in life as well. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and I think that, uh, you know, by uh, be, being able to do that as well, I see it as a, as a celebration of us as a multicultural country as mm. well. Birthing is a natural thing. It is a human thing. It doesn't belong to anybody differently from anybody else. Yeah. Um, and so how we but having said that, the, the importance of the difference of culture, um, and who that baby is and how we celebrate, um, the birth of, of, you know, of babies. It's, and I'm quoted as saying, and it's so true, you know, your birthing process is your first ceremony. Mm. It is the closest that we have to our connection to our ancestors and before the light, you know, so it's, it's such a, it's such a beautiful humanistic cultural thing that we have gone away from, that we don't celebrate in the way that we should. And I think with birthing on country and birthing in community and celebrating uh, birthing through having birthing centres and through having uh, programs like birthing on country across Australia, we can make a real difference in not only the individual family but, you know, in the fabric of our nation. Yeah, it seems like, um, you know, on, like you said, on an individual level, but also, um, in terms of like a global health perspective, it's so crucial to have these services for, um, uh, First Nations communities. Do you think there's potential to expand this type of model to other health and wellbeing services? Uh, yes, absolutely, I do, because it is that thing around that we have different practices of, of what we of what and how we do things. Aged care is probably a very good example. Yeah. You know, how that different communities and, and Australia treat our old people, they have this they've had the Royal Commission and all those things. We 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 also have a residential aged care facility. The uh there's opportunities to, to transfer the principles of birthing in our community to other parts most definitely and as I say in my first, the first thing that I go to is aged care. Mm. How we care for our old people, and how, as Australians, but certainly as First Nations people, and I'm sure for other cultures as well, the absolute, you know, respect and preciousness of old people. The principles are the same for us from birthing in our community. Um, 
Before we uh, finish our, our interview today, Jody, if there are people out there who would like to know more about birthing in our community um, or a birthing on country service, um, where can they go to, to to read more about about this program? So if you go to um, birth, uh, birthing on con- birthing on country, you will see at as in Google, there's yep. a website that you can go to. Um, and same for birthing in our community. So if you write either one and there's, a, there's information there about different programs that are running across the country. Um, but if you Google birthing in our communities, it will take you to our website. Okay, great. Oh, well, maybe we can, um, link, um, the website, uh, on our, uh, include a link on our, um, on our homepage as well. Um, thank you so much, Jody, for, for speaking with us today. It sounds like, um, it's quite a revolutionary um, service, um, but also, you know, should be an absolute um, must for, um, first of all, you know, our First Nations people, but but then everyone else, like you said, in the community. Um, thank you so much. I'm sure our listeners will want to know more about this service. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'd love to have you on the show um, later um, in the year um, uh, just to see how this service is expanding um, and supporting more um, women and people giving birth. Lovely. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Um, that was Jodie Curry, uh, CEO of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Services Brisbane, speaking to our show about um, birthing on country service and how um, this practice can really support um, First Nations women and birthers um, as they go through their journey of, of giving birth. All right, we're going to go to a track um, by the incredible Erica Badu. Uh, this is titled Back in the Day. If it will play. <laughs> Thank you. 
That was Erica Badu with her song, Back in the Day. All right, we've got a very special guest on the show now. Um, her name is Elisa Bone. Uh, she's a senior lecturer at um, senior lecturer in higher education curriculum and assessment at the Melbourne Centre for the Study of Higher Education, where she works to advise academics across the University of Melbourne in curriculum innovation projects with a focus on the STEM pr- disciplines. Um, Elisa has a background in zoology and marine ecology and has worked as a researcher and instructor in Australia, the Solomon Islands, New Zealand and the US. Uh, she has designed, taught and coordinated courses in the biological and ecological sciences from introductory to graduate levels and has a deep interest in the capacity of collaborative education to build awareness of global environmental problems. I mean, considering this incredibly <laughs> deep <laughs> um, uh, array of um, qualifications that you have, it's very telling of the topic that we're going to be talking about, which is um, specifically, I guess, um, online education now and um, uh, the transition from the pandemic by a lot of higher education places to online education. But first of all, welcome to the show, Elisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Genevieve. It's great to be on. Awesome. And all right, I want to start off. Um, particularly, this is a topic that's quite interesting to me, being obviously a student, being in the midst of the pandemic um, last year and um, having um, all the classes gone online and everything. Um, as I'm sure many of our listeners are also either studying or have children that were studying online um, uh, and know how turbulent but I guess necessary this shift to online was. But I guess to start off, let, uh, if you could just paint a little picture about what kind of impact impact the pandemic had on especially universities and how this changed the way we deliver education? Oh, well, that's a, it's been quite devastating in many ways for universities, um, the impact of the pandemic. As you would know, there was really a forced shift to online learning uh, as the borders closed and as the COVID risk became too great for people to stay on campus. So that really forced universities to think about how they were going to deliver their, their classes and their courses, whether they were going to be able to retain students at all on campus. Um, and for some universities, they really moved, made that shift quite immediately. Uh, there was I was working at Sydney University at the time of uh, lockdown, uh, the, the first lockdown, sorry, and it was really just one week we were at university and the next week that we were home and that was it. Um, Whereas others, I think, took a couple of weeks or so, maybe gave their students and staff a week or two to adjust, but then we were back online. And so that really put staff and students in a really difficult situation because they were having to suddenly understand how to move all their uh, curriculum online, um, moving to a way... uh, from face-to-face, sorry, to an online format was, was quite difficult for some. And um, doing all the administration work as well, trying to uh, make sure your students were still in contact with you and engaged. And, of course, then we're all dealing with a pandemic and all of the anxiety and stresses that come along with that um, made that even more challenging. 
for, for many staff, I think. Primarily, we, I am dealing with staff at the University of Melbourne, so I work with, with staff on, as, as you mentioned in the bio, on the curriculum design projects. And so we've got a really intimate understanding of how staff have been coping with these changes, and it's been quite difficult. Uh, one other thing, I guess, would be in the mix there is that because we had a decreased revenue from international students, of course, they can't come over because the borders were closed. And so that uh, became very difficult with university budgets. So a lot of staff lost their jobs. Our universities made lots of cuts and forced redundancies. So there was quite a lot going on uh, throughout 2020. And I would also add that that has not ceased as yet. So we're still in quite a difficult space. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to kind of jump on what you just said there in terms of, you know, um, higher education um, has been hit pretty hard predominantly with the substantial loss of revenue and I guess of a lack of support um, that the government is prepared to give to higher education workers um, and students specifically. And I guess um, do you think this has had an Im- any impact on the quality of education or, I guess, the quality of teaching? Well, I, I'm, on the actual morale, I think it has a huge impact. Uh, the unions have been very good in, in supporting higher education workers and trying to find ways to, to support them through the, through the crisis. But what happens in higher education is in other education is that instructors are often very so dedicated to their students they're really dedicated to their to their classes uh, and to their disciplines and so they put in that extra effort to um, to continue a, a really rich learning experience for their students so I wouldn't go as far as saying that it's affected the quality of the educa- online education Sorry, the quality of higher education, because I'm not really in a position to, to judge that across across the sector, but I do know that it's put extra pressure yeah, on definitely. teaching academics and on students, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I guess this um, segues nicely into the next question. Um, you talk about in the article that you wrote uh, for the conversation, mm. specifically addressing this um, about, I guess, the misconception that online is easier and cheaper. Um, do you mm. want to expand on this a little bit more in terms of why it's not so? Sure, sure. So what we're seeing a lot uh, at the moment is a lot of commentary about how this has become a transformative time for higher education and education generally because we know in general that higher education, it's quite difficult to effect large-scale strategic change uh, across universities because one of the wonderful things about universities, of course, is the close-knit communities it can develop within disciplines uh, and that sense of belonging that staff and students can have um, to, to their fellow students, to their fellow staff within, say, the biological sciences or the arts or uh, literature and so on. So these really close-knit communities, um, well, they, they're fantastic to be in, they're enriching, they're... Uh, energizing places to be but when it comes to making large-scale changes they they can often be resistant because they have their own their own procedures and their own norms Uh, and so when universities try to affect strategic change um, they often do that in a top-down manner uh, which isn't 
as effective as having people from the bottom up um, uh, make those changes themselves. But what COVID did, I guess, is it was this huge external disruption that forced everyone to change um, without any of that. And it, no one really had a choice. <laughs> we yeah. just had to move online. And so um, with all those kind of ideas about how do you affect change across universities, it was thought that, well, this is the point at which we're all going to change, move online. We're going to have uh, a fully digitally connected uh, campus spaces with interactive uh, sort of pods and modules for students and we're all going to be far more connected at the digital world and we're global um, and we're just this is just the way it's going to be we're going to this is the shift this is the the the, the, tr the transformative shift that will change universities forever but it's it's not quite as easy as that because we know that we need to build the capacity of um, academics to be able to actually work in the online space. Um, we need to encourage them to do so when they haven't been able to, when they might not have been doing so in the past. Uh, and, and there's quite a lot of work that goes into that. It's not just a simple matter of putting your lectures online. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is very poor <laughs> pedagogical <laughs> strategy. So, so I mean, if, if you're a student, you, you've been working online, if you've had instructors that have just put a 60-minute lecture, a 50-minute lecture online, um, it, it really it doesn't uh, recreate the student learning experience in a way that can really increase um, student learning and really increase student engagement. So to do online learning well uh, takes quite a lot of work. It takes a lot of support. It takes a lot of support in terms of both technology and in terms of um, curriculum design and um, techniques to engage students and, and to provide them with appropriate feedback and it also needs the uh, will as well from, mm -hmm. from the academics themselves. They need to, to want to see these different opportunities for engaging their students in different ways um, and, and if I can sort of repeat myself a little bit that um, the pandemic did force Academics to think about different ways of doing things. Um, that would so, be so my that has next question. Opportunities. That, yeah, that, sure. That's my next question, really, which is I want to I want to get a sense of mm. um, how academics feel about these changes mm. because uh, I know that like you know there are plenty of sort of across the world there are lots of online sort of educational opportunities for various sort of things that people can enroll in like you know different languages different yeah you know, lots of stem courses and that sort of thing but it's still very different to an actual university environment that has an online component and it would be interesting to understand what traditional academics feel about that move, especially so suddenly and not actually having that ramping up experience as they perhaps normally would. Mm. Yes, it is interesting. There's there's quite a range of experiences, as you'd probably imagine. There's ranging from um, just really upset about the whole thing um, through through to those who have seen the opportunities that it might be able to provide for changing the way they um, do their teaching. So what one thing that we're doing is that we're trying to examine these across uh, a set of academics that we've been working with over the last year um, because we know that 
there's a really clear relationship in, and we're focusing on academics because we know there's a really clear, well-established relationship between the ways in which academics experience the context in which they teach. So that's about um, the, the departmental context, the, their students and, and, and those sorts of things, um, and the ways in which they approach their teaching. And this in turn has a relationship between, uh, sorry, with the ways that students approach their learning and the student learning experience. So there's this really um, relational aspect here and so that by listening to academics and learning more about their unique experiences, we can find out what they need and provide them appropriate support to eventually, hopefully, influence the student experience in a positive way. So what we've been finding is that some academics have been... um, appreciating the sort of flexibility, I suppose, and and some have been finding it really, really challenging to move to the online space. And I think what has come across is that if academics are provided appropriate support um, in terms of understanding what their student... what Sorry, what their learning goals are for their students, uh, what their particular uh, teaching needs are and what kinds of technology can help them achieve those goals and also being provided with uh, support amongst um, themselves in in terms of in their department and uh, an understanding of the challenges that they're facing, then they sometimes can see uh, the benefit of doing things in a slightly different way. They might be able to see um, different ways that they could achieve the same learning outcomes in the online space. But it has been a really challenging time for everyone, even the ones that have been able to see some opportunities coming out of this um, have have been really, really stretched. Yeah, definitely. It's been really, really difficult for them. I think that, like, pinpoints your point about, you know, you need will. You need, like, the motivation, and in order Mm -hmm. to have the will, you need the resources and um, the knowledge in terms of how to deliver it effectively. And I think it it mirrors exactly what students kind of feel as well. (laughs) Like, you either love online learning for the flexibility of, um, you know, just sitting at home and (laughs) being in a class, or you either hate it because of the, I guess, it's harder to engage or, like, the non-sociable part about it. Um, But just I wanted to ask in terms of more of a um, future, I guess, proposition, do you think um, the future still holds, you know, in-person education or are we kind of slowly moving towards an inevitable shift online that was kind of sped up by COVID? Uh Speaking from just my uh, personal perspective, I think it will be blended. Mm -hmm. So by blended, I mean we have a mix of face-to-face and online. And so, as you said, some students do appreciate this flexibility. Um, So they might have off-campus responsibilities or other needs. Uh, It also, online can also provide a way to to keep connections with international students, as we saw when uh, we all moved online. Mm. Um, and for some students, they can feel kind of lost in those typical large lecture theatres and those online interactions with with Zoom and small groups or discussion boards can provide a safe space for some students who might be uh, less inclined to, to speak out amongst 800 students in a lecture. 
So, so what's been interesting is we found some teaching academics have reported actually better engagement in their online spaces than in the face-to-face, um, partly because of these, these ideas. Um, and some things, some things might work better, but, but some things don't. So I think that the future state potentially would be about determining at the disciplinary level or at the major and program level, if you like, uh, what types of learning activities are most suited to face-to-face. And for things like science, that would, of course, be things like labs, which are yeah. really difficult to recreate online, uh, and performance spaces as well um, in the performing arts and things like that. Um, and then think about what things could be moved online and 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 do, do we really need someone standing up there and um, and talking about core uh, like the Krebs cycle for 50 minutes when we could make that an online interactive module which students can go to and reinforce their learning in a flexible way in their own time so it's about thinking about uh, what's appropriate for different formats and and what's appropriate for the students learning needs and the t- teachers' uh, learning capacity, uh, the teachers' teaching capacity, and the teaching style as well. Mm. And I think it's going to be a blend. And and we know that universities are in quite deep discussions about this at the moment. Of course, uh, as we're hopefully, at least in Australia, we're uh, moving towards a. Um, I guess they're saying COVID normal, but it, we, it, what, <laughs> it certainly won't feel normal. Um, and to a to a way a place where we're less. Uh, less dependent on, on these COVID restrictions. We can come into campus. Uh, we're getting welcome back onto campus now. Uh, I don't think everything is going to go back the way it was because at least some of the teaching academics have seen different ways of doing things and have seen that there are advantages to having some of these things online. So it, it won't be either or. Um, as some have said, it's a, it's a false dichotomy to say online versus face-to-face. Yeah. And so it's more likely to be a mix. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and and the, challenge is, yeah, the challenge is going to be then to determine which things go where and, and to decide which, which, which learning activities are suitable for the different formats really requires a, a, a deep reflection on the part of the instructors but also the um, program coordinators and the university executive to think about where should things be placed and 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 that sort of deep reflection it can only be a good thing really because we're thinking more about the student experience and um, how to best improve our teaching and learning definitely and I think um, you know knowing that this is going to be yeah kind of a more of a permanent thing that um, I guess everyone was thinking last year that we need to kind of create some more stable um, ways of delivering education that's um, effective. Um, just to finish up, uh, I guess a optimistic remark or question maybe. <laughs> um, in, your, uh, in your opinion, I guess in an ideal world, uh, what do you hope to see come out of this uh, hard time for academics uh, and students for, at universities? Um, I think it's about being more, as I said, reflective about what we're doing. So what uh, teaching academics are, are doing to improve the learning experience for their students and, and a more 
uh, nuanced conversation, I suppose, to, I suppose about uh, what the purpose of university teaching is and a, a deeper appreciation of the challenges that teaching academics face, but also a, 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 of the experience that they can provide for students. We've, we've seen in some of our interactions with teaching academics and some of our research that academics, teaching academics have formed these um, collaborative learning communities for each other um, based on the fact that they all had to move online and they all had to uh, get on top of these new technologies and these new ways of teaching really quickly so that they could improve their student experience. So those sorts of collaborative networks and, and people sharing ideas and uh, a really deep understanding of what the students are going through and what the teaching academics are going through and, and kind of working together to improve things for everybody, I think. I think that would that that would be a really neat thing to come out Definitely. of this. And just just an appreciation of what um, of the experiences of of everybody at university, and an appreciation for the 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 importance of of good good teaching, yeah. but also um, a, a great learning experience and working experience for for teaching academics. Definitely. I think that was a really nice uh, comment to finish up on. Um, well, thank you so much, Elisa, for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much, Genevieve. It's been wonderful to chat about uh, teaching and learning at yeah, university. Definitely. And all, yeah, I think and very, all the best for your studies too. Thank you. Oh, God, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to need it. <laughs> um, I think a very underrated topic of conversation that hasn't really been charted. So thank you. Mm, no problem. Thanks again. That was uh, Elisa Bone, a senior lecturer in higher education curriculum and assessment at the Melbourne Centre for the Study of Higher Education. Sorry, that is quite a mouthful. <laughs> um, just talking about uh, the ways in which universities are, I guess, conducting online education and maybe the ways in which they can move forward uh, with online education to better support um, academics and students. Well, this takes us to the end of the show. Um, we uh, had a pretty jam-packed show today. Um, Fong uh, spoke to Jody Curry about um, the birthing on country, which was a really interesting interview. If you didn't listen to it and you're just tuning in now, please listen to it. Um, and I just spoke to Elisa Bone. Um, please stay tuned because Accent of Women is up next and hope you all have a lovely day. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, 
It has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.